0: Hello, and welcome to the Humanities Pod. I'm Annette Richards, and we're talking today about clothes, words, and race, about fashion and self-fashioning, especially in the literature of the Harlem Renaissance.
1: I do see clothing as the way of psychically containing the body and keeping at least an image of it in a hostile world where one's body can be beaten, killed, or just hurt by racist and sexist epithets. So clothing kind of inherits that history of creating a defense for themselves.
0: My guest is Kimberly Lamb, Associate Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University, and a Fellow at Cornell's Society for the Humanities. Kim's work brings together literature, visual culture, and the feminist engagement with psychoanalysis. And her project this year for the Society's Fabrication theme has to do with clothing, fashion, and practices of self-fashioning among African-American women. Her project is entitled Fabricating Truths, Sartorial Self-Fashioning, and the Legacies of Enslavement. So, Kim, you've written about fashionable clothing as a visual and material practice of transformation, intimately woven into the texture of everyday life. And you've drawn attention to how clothing, and I'm quoting you here, was an aesthetic medium African-Americans deployed to fashion themselves as historical subjects with pasts and futures of their own design. Your work stretches from the late 19th century to the 21st, and it's richly multifaceted, ranging across literature, novels, autobiographical writing, to visual media, photography, and portraiture. Let's start with Fabricating Truths. Tell us about the book's central themes and the contribution you hope to make with this project.
1: Yeah, thank you. In Fabricating Truths, I'm trying to trace how Black women writers from Reconstruction to the middle of the 20th century represent clothing in their writing. That's the core of, of the project. It starts with the work of Elizabeth Keckley, who was uh, both a dressmaker and a writer, and her 1868 autobiography, Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. I see that that text as inaugurating a tradition of black women writing about clothing and creating a link between what James Weldon Johnson will call in 1911 words and clothes. So this link between clothing and, and, and language, clothing and writing is important because what I'm seeing is that it opened up spaces of visibility that, that were not, Available in dominant culture in the US, or at least were heavily circumscribed. So the writing attests to the ways in which, through clothing, Black women kind of created worlds for themselves that they didn't necessarily see mirrored in the visual culture at large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: It's a fascinating tension that you describe between visibility and invisibility. Perhaps this also goes back to Johnson's Words and Clothes essay. Yes. On the one hand, you describe women dressing up and really all about glamour. I'm thinking about in the portrait studio of James Van Der Zee, this Mm -hmm. this wonderful idea of of exceeding the frame, if you like, of the kind Mm -hmm. of limitations put on by the white gaze. And then on the other hand, Johnson just talks about the idea of clothing being a route to normalcy. Yes. And the idea of not sticking out and, and effacing that visibility. Can you say a bit more about that
1: tension? That seems very productive and interesting. The portrait artist uh, that you refer to, James Vanderzee, he he had a prominent uh, portrait studio in New York City in the early 20th century in Harlem um, specifically, and and his studio represents what was going on across the country in small urban centers of portrait studios run and catering to Black Americans. These studios, Vanderzee's work. The act of fashioning oneself before the camera. I think this was an incredibly almost revolutionary act, and certainly someone like Frederick Douglass saw it that way, of of asserting one's visibility on one's own terms. It also has to do with dignity, respectability. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of um there is a kind of conformity. Mm-hmm. In that gesture that I think attests to some of the hegemonic dimensions, the the normalizing dimensions of, of visual culture in broad mm-hmm. terms. So yeah. that's always a tension in my work, kind of the the limitations of visibility and how writers are able with words to do something different than the regularizing grammars of visual culture.
0: Perhaps we can connect that to the the story that you tell about. Uh, the relation between this kind of self-representation and the legacies of enslavement. Mm -hmm. That's also part of your work. Would you like to say a bit more about that?
1: yeah, I mean, the legacies of enslavement is a complicated issue. The work that really opened up this issue for me is no leeway two thousand and four book, Ladies Pages: African American Women's Magazines and the Culture that Made them. And in her in her third chapter, she has this wonderful formulation. Uh, it's a set of questions. Is it possible to see silence? can an unspoken history of violence and brutality find a language in the swish of a skirt, gently caressing an ankle? So I read that sentence and I, mm. I, I, I just thought that that was it just so much in it. It gets to the psychic legacy of a brutal history. Um, but that was also of course, continuing to think about Sadia Hartman's concept of the time of slavery and um, but also this idea of something unspoken, finding a language in the material of clothing, and then getting at the sensual pleasures of wearing a skirt. What mm-hmm. I like about that question is that she's speculating about clothing from the inside, from the person who's wearing it, and um, and what that might mean or what that might feel like. And so for me, it really highlights what Elizabeth Sheehan identifies as sartorial ways of knowing and feeling that text can capture. And so my job is to think about how the work of these writers answer Rook's question. One of the things that
0: actually that strikes me in your own writing Mm -hmm. is this focus on texture and the tactility of language. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, you're a literary scholar who works mm-hmm. in visual studies, mm-hmm. and you talk about how words do the work of opening worlds not available to visual culture. Mm-hmm. Can you say a bit more about that? <laughs>
1: do I say? Uh, do I really say that? Um, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I see visual culture as. You know, obviously incredibly rich and multidimensional, and uh, fabricating truths is running parallel to the emergence of 20th century visual culture. Um, I do see a crystallization of ideology in the visual that is ultimately limiting, I think, that ultimately serves capitalism. Mm-hmm. I was very much influenced by Guy Debord's work and the society of the spectacle and the idea that the image is an accumulation of capital, that that continues to be um, really important idea to me. And so you know, one of the things that Roland Barth traces is the ways in which language became secondary to the image. Uh, it does the work of of caption, of copy. Of course, mm-hmm. it can be like a kind of brand name or or something like that. But there's a, you know, even in social media, the, all the writing that we do is, is often kind of secondary or kind of supplement to the, the message of the image. So I mm-hmm. do think that language is a way to... Um, bring out the history, the meaning, the texture of images. Because in a simple kind of semiotic way, it's just words are are, uh, are farther away from the reference.
0: Yes, and I think this is something that you uh, wrote about in your first book, Addressing the Other Woman. Say a little bit about that. Mm,
1: yes, my first book Was about charting the ways in which visual artists in the 1970s turned to language as a way to kind of interrupt or layer the image because they were inheriting a a world in which women were expected to make themselves visible and not just make themselves visible, but create images of themselves that would cater to the needs of other people. And what I'm trying to work out now, the this idea of the affective labor of the image, mm-hmm. um, fashioning oneself into an image that says, I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. And um, the writing, the text is a way of, of eroding that expectation. Let's talk a little bit about clothes
0: and resistance. Yes. Or fashion and rebellion. Uh, I know you've written about mahogany. Yes. With Diana Ross. Yeah, love it. Yes, me too. But of course, this comes up too. Bright colors, sartorial resistance through this kind of glorious investment in clothes. It comes up too in Nella Larson's novel, Quicksand. Say a little bit more about uh, this idea of... um, clothes being co-opted or put to work, fashion being put to work, especially by women in the name of resistance?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the thing that I think Mahogany, the film with Diana Ross playing Tracy Chambers, a fashion designer and a black woman trying to uh, make her way into the world of fashion and Nella Larson's Quicksand from 1926, one of the things they they share, as you pointed out, is an an attention to vibrant, bright colors, textured displays, elaborate fabrics, almost especially with mahogany, almost tipping into like costume, you know, fantasy costume. Mm -hmm. I I think their choices, um, About vibrant display is speaking back to a history that emerged in the late 19th century when neo Darwinian um, arguments put forth by intellectuals like Adolf Loos and uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. and uh, Thorstein Veblen, they were really arguing against ornamentation and mm-hmm. saw it in Darwinian terms, saw it as a sign of uh, primitivism and savagery. Mm-hmm. And that got attached to uh, black bodies and black women's bodies in particular. And so to take up bright colors and take up ornamentation is is a way of resisting that, that history of seeing a a kind of modernist streamlined aesthetic as being tasteful. And I do think we inherit that. Um, I think it's changed Mm -hmm. uh, uh, quite dramatically, but I think, you know, if we see someone in bright pink, (laughs) um, I think that, you know, we still have questions about what that might mean and whether it's tasteful or not. Yes. And
0: you drew the connection beautifully between, um, Ornamentalism and Orientalism, yes. But I think also of the work of Nick Cave, right? And right. and those those extraordinary sound suits of his, yeah. which are so brilliant and bright, and they seem so upbeat in all kinds yeah. of ways. Mm-hmm. And yet he talks about the very dark core to that project and this yeah. idea of. Um, what does he say, making secondary skins that are, that are suits mm-hmm. of armor yeah. and that hide gender, race, and class. You've written a little bit about
1: Cave, too, I think. Yeah, I have written about the sound suits, uh, Nick Cave sound suits, which are so um, glorious. <laughs> um, yeah. They're almost from – they just feel like from another era. Um <laughs> Yes, it's it would be like living living inside a kind of medieval manuscript or something like you know it's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, the work engaging with his work was really important to me because of the the vibrancy and and the display of the work um, because it so clearly creates an interior an interior space and it highlights the idea of clothing and ornamentation. As a kind of defense, yeah, as a psychic defense, it, it gets literalized through these elaborate costumes, but I do see clothing as the way of psychically containing the body and keeping at least an image of it in a hostile world, mm-hmm. right, where one's mm-hmm. body can be uh beaten, killed, or just hurt by racist and sexist epithets. So clothing kind of inherits that history of creating a defense for themselves. Mm -hmm.
0: Can you say a little bit more about fabrication Mm -hmm. and the way in which Fabrication is at the heart of your project and maybe a little bit about how being part of this group this year Mm -hmm. at the Societies of the Humanities has impacted your thinking or the way you're executing your project.
1: Yeah, it's really opened up a a lot for me participating in the reading group. I initially came to the idea of, of fabrication and put it in the title because I was interested in fabrication as a lie. And tracking how the the writers contest the fabrications, the lies of racism and sexism that limit how people are seen and limit uh, what people can do and say about their lives. So I had this idea of this paradox of fabricating truths the mm-hmm. um, the truth of uh, interiority, the truth of subjectivity and and privacy and I'm very interested in fabrication's relationship to um, femininity yeah. and prettiness. I, I really like this book by Rosalind Galt called Pretty, where she's kind of tracking the history of, in Western aesthetics of the, the dismissal of, of prettiness. So mm-hmm. there's a kind of fabrication that might be inherent to some historical iterations of femininity that I think are easy to not see, but incredibly valuable. And the seminar has foregrounded for me the importance of thinking about making um, the hands-on work of fabrication. And so it's really propelled me to think more about learning about how clothing was made in the late 19th century. And that was always implicit in what I was doing, but responding to people's work and this, you know, this deep attention to the the touch of making has really opened up areas of research that maybe I wouldn't have gone to otherwise. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was struck by the fact that James Weldon Johnson's mother
0: was a seamstress. Is that that right?
1: Yes. I think Nella Larson's mother was as well. You know, Beyonce talks about the fact that yes. um, her grandmother and her mother were worked as seamstresses. I just feel like there's a whole history there. Um There's whole histories in people's lives that is really interesting, important, and but also um I don't want to in, intrude on it because I feel like it's it's private. Um, mm-hmm. It has to do with people's personal histories, and mm-hmm. one of the things that I think. Clothing does in this work is present an image of what's private. If we can think in in those kinds of paradoxes,
0: in terms of the clothes that encase the body,
1: yes, and
0: protect it from view, yes, at
1: the same time, yes, right, right. It's a way of saying this is how I see myself, and there's a world of me that uh, you can't see. Yeah. Is there a particular
0: moment or object or a passage in mm. the material that you've been working with that has particularly inspired you or struck you or become an engine for further research and thought?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, one thing I do think about, it's not necessarily literary, but Amy Sherald's portraits, which are very colorful and highlight the everydayness of sartorial display. She was the portrait painter for Michelle Obama's official portrait. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has these fantastic titles that are often um, allusions to African-American literature. And so it, for me, that body of work kind of raises the relationship between literature and um and painted portraits. The other moment that I that I was thinking of comes out of Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, from 1942. And for me, it illustrates how a literary depiction of clothing can represent these sartorial ways of, of knowing and feeling, and particularly the feeling of self-possession. That clothing contributes to. Hurston is describing her efforts to return to school in the difficult years after her mother's death, and she reflects on her clothing and, and writes, um, uh, I will not go so far to say that I was poorly dressed, for that would be bragging. The best I can say is that I could not be arrested for indecent exposure. Um And then an unexpected friend, a poor white woman, lines Hurston up for a job as a lady's maid for an actress and buys her a dress for the interview. And she describes the dress and the pleasure she takes in um, seeing herself within it in the following way, uh, Hurston writes... The dress was a navy blue poplin with a box pleated skirt and a little round white collar. To my own self, I never did look so pretty before. I put on the dress and a dark blue felt hat with a rolled brim. So, I just I love this little portrait in words. It's it's dense with uh, detail and texture, and it doesn't give a, a clear picture of her. Mm-hmm it instead highlights the words that she's choosing to describe the dimensions of her of her outfit which also parallels the style she expressed growing up and also it it foregrounds her own act of of looking at herself as an image with pleasure to my own self i never did look so pretty before I see the sentence as kind of replicating her self-reflection. So this could easily go unnoticed, but I see it as kind of really valuable and exemplifying what I'm trying to pay attention to.
0: Yes, it's very beautiful. And the way that, that the secrets are in the language. Yes. Kim, thinking about just your work as a humanist across these various disciplines that you work in, do you want to say a little bit about your research Process about your sources, about materials, mm-hmm. archives. Yeah, the kind of research that you do.
1: Just give a picture of that. For this project, for fabricating truths, I'm, I'm really paying attention to the literary texts and letting them guide the research that I do in visual culture. Mm-hmm more and more I've been encouraged to kind of pair the literary texts with the the images of visual culture from the period in which the women are working. So like Keckley's behind the scenes in relationship to photographic portraiture in the 19th century. But I am still committed to, and this might change, what uniquely the literature can do. Mm-hmm. And often the the visual culture or images can kind of um, get superimposed onto text and then they just become illustrations of each other. Yeah. And I'm working away from that. So that's really hard. And when travel becomes safe, I, I want to go to the Schoenberg Center in Harlem and look at the papers of Anne Petrie She is the author of the well-known and well-regarded novel, The Street, from 1946. Mm -hmm. I think it was the first novel by an African-American that sold a million copies in the United States. She had such an interesting career. She wrote copy for a wig company. Um, She worked at the Amsterdam News in the advertising department. She wrote a column called The Lighter Side for the newspapers, The People's Voice that addressed women, and particularly around relationships of of consumption and unfair consumer practices. Mm -hmm. She also worked as a screenwriter. So I'd love to be able to look at these materials and kind of see how this work outside of her writing of novels shaped her understanding of the of the visual sensibility that she demonstrates in the writing, I think, so well.
0: That's exciting that yes. there's an archive there waiting for you to uncover, discover, delve into. Yeah. One other thing perhaps I could ask you, mm-hmm. in the process of doing... the the work that you've been doing so far on this project has anything unanticipated unexpected emerged have you found yourself going in directions you didn't think you would take
1: I didn't think that I would be um, confronting violence um, racist violence so directly but um, like uh, as I said I'm I'm really interested in Amy Sherald's painted portraiture and the sartorial dimensions of that, of her work. And she painted an image of Breonna Taylor for the cover of Vanity Fair, um, which I've I've written about and and thought about in relationship to state murder and anti-Black violence. I I didn't think I would be going there, um, but the present moment demands that I also didn't think that I would be necessarily bringing my interest in psychoanalysis to this project, but I'm Louise bourgeois. The artist has this mm-hmm. uh, statement where she, she says psychoanalysis is my religion. And I, I I kind of agree with that. I posted it on Facebook. I didn't get one like, but um, <laughs> but um, that's how I feel as well. I, I more we're living in, I think, like very anti psychoanalytic times, um, and the world of of feminist psychoanalysis, which really shaped shaped my work in the '90s, is kind of is kind of gone. But I think the idea of working through is incredibly valuable to kind of remember so as not to unconsciously repeat. And I think we've been in a period of of history where we're all kind of banging our heads against a wall about the irrationality of other people. And psychoanalysis gives us some tools for thinking about that. And so um, I'm gonna have to bring that in to this project, but uh, it's hard because people don't wanna hear it. Kim, let's move to
0: a final question for today. And um, it's this, mm-hmm. can you recommend something for us to read, something that comes out of the work that you're doing this year mm. uh, that you think is a must read for anybody interested in the questions that that you're raising and, and some of the themes that we've talked about today?
1: I think Tanisha Ford's Dressed in Dreams, uh, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion, I think is just gorgeous. And I think it, it encapsulates a lot of the, what I think is at stake in clothing, the history of clothing, um, wearing clothing as a kind of an archive of unspoken or unwritten histories. She writes about clothing as world-making. She says, through our clothes, we can do our own form of world-making, imagining possibilities beyond what our current status says is our reality. So I think that that's great. Uh, I highly recommend that book. Also this book by Kevin Kwashi. Uh, called The Sovereignty of Quiet Beyond Resistance in Black Culture. He's exploring what Elizabeth Alexander identifies as the black interior and argues that an an idea of the inner life challenges Expected, quote, politics of representation in which Black subjectivity exists for its social and political meaningfulness rather than as a marker of human individuality of the person who is Black. So that really points to the singularity of, of subjectivity. And he talks about quiet and femininity and domestic spaces and a lot of things that uh, don't get a lot of attention now. It's quite a, it's quite a thoughtful and eloquent book. So I recommend both those books.
0: Oh, this is great. Thank you very much, Kim. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. And um, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time, for sharing your work with us, for being so generous with your your thoughts, your warmth, your enthusiasm. And um, we'll look forward very much to seeing the book when it comes out. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions, and that It's been great talking to you.
0: We've been talking today with Kimberly Lamb, Associate Professor of Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies at Duke University. The Humanities Pod is a production of the Society for the Humanities, introducing you to some of the new work, the current conversations and the latest ideas of humanists at and around Cornell. The pod is produced by Tyler Lurie Spicer, Our music is from the continuing story of Counterpoint by David Borden, performed and recorded by Mother Mallard's portable masterpiece company. Our thanks go to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Cayuga Nation on whose traditional lands Cornell is situated.